You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. I'd like to introduce myself to you, <laughs> all of you, not just some of you. Uh, my name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace Community Church. Uh, my wife and I have been away for two months. We were here one Sunday in, at the beginning of July, but I've been on two-month sabbatical. Just want to say to, to the congregation and the elders, thank you so much for allowing me that time uh, away. We have traveled most of that two months. We were on the road all the time, and then this past 20 days, well, 20 days of being in Europe ended on uh, Monday, and I cannot tell you how glad I am to be back to work so that I can get some rest. So, and you know what that's like when you're away. But there is nowhere we would rather be than with our church family on the Lord's Day. Um, before I jump in uh, to the message, I just want to mention a couple of things. Next Sunday, we begin Grace Connection. That's already been mentioned this morning uh, in the announcements. But if you are new to Grace, if you want to find out a little bit more about what Grace Community Church is all about, uh, you want to know what we believe, how we operate, what is the elder rule. That's a, that's a, a new sort of church structure for some of you, church polity. You have not <clears throat> been familiar with that. How does that all work? We have four Sundays beginning next week. We're going to skip the Labor Day Sunday. Uh, but we would love for you to join us. There's a sign-up sheet in the welcome room off the lobby there to the, to the left in the back. <clears throat> and uh, you can sign up online. But please, just come and see what the Lord is doing in this place. We would love for you to be a part of that. Also, <clears throat> on Monday nights this fall, a couple of things. Um, Charlie Williams is going to be leading Financial Peace University. Many of you are familiar with Dave Ramsey. Many of you know the name, but you don't know much about what he teaches about finances. I'm telling you, it will radically change your life. If you have never <clears throat> read the materials, if you've never been through this program, it will radically change the way that you look at money, the way that you handle money, and almost certainly, if you struggle with discipline in regard to your money, uh, you will come to the end of the month and realize that you've been just riding down the road throwing money out the window. It really is that, it is a powerful um, lesson on how God desires that we steward the money that he's given us. So I would encourage you to do that or if you're looking for a little deeper Bible study, the South Wake Bible Institute uh, is coming to Fuquay Arena. Uh, there are three of us uh, on uh, staff and our elders, David Calvert and Neil Manning and I are on the board of directors of that. But there will be three classes offered this fall. I'm teaching New Testament epistles. I did everything I could to get out of teaching that, but I'm, I'm happily going to be teaching it. It's going to be um, uh, a class on the Psalms, and the other one is discipleship, I believe. Uh, yes, so on Monday nights in Fuquay Arena, and especially your home group leaders, your, 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 your desire to teach, you think the Lord has given you a desire to teach, or you just want to know more about the Bible, 
we would love for you to join us. So we'll have more about that in the coming uh, days. <clears throat> so as Allison and I return to <clears throat> Wake and Harnett counties, we bring greetings from Joe and Stefania Hunziker and family, and also from Stefano and Mary Stanisia. You might remember Stefano and Mary were just before getting married last year when they were here. They're married now and serving the Lord extremely well. You would be amazed at what the Lord is doing in Italy uh, right now in the evangelical world. Now, you've got to think, Italy is mostly Catholic, as you might assume, with the Vatican being there in Rome. And evangelicals are considered a cult. Um, and so they work, they're constantly swimming upstream, walking uphill, whatever the metaphor you want to use. <clears throat> but the Lord is beginning to do a lot of good things. And doctrinally, the church is becoming more and more solid and, and grounded in the word. And so God is saving a lot of people at Isola uh, Bible Camp. And that is an amazing thing, again, in Italy. We got to see the camp in action. The Willifords and the Tallies were there. We got to see the camp in action, and it was a, a beautiful thing to see the way God's spirit is moving in that place. So all of them send greetings, and I got the chance to speak to the staff and also to the campers through uh, the, Joe, the interpreter, uh, at least for one of those. I think someone else interpreted for the campers, but, but um, Joe... <clears throat> uh, I told them, the Lord has just put us together, Grace Community Church and Italy. What the Lord is doing in Italy, we get to be a part of. Because Joe and the camp, Joe and Stefania in the camp are very important uh, pieces in the puzzle that the Lord is beginning to put together to where it's beginning to take shape and sight in the whole nation. So it, it, be excited and think when you read Philippians 1, when Paul talks about partnering with the Philippians, you think about that with our friends in Italy and pray not only for Isola, but also for the entire nation. <clears throat> so enough of that. If you are here for the first time, you'll be interested to know that we are in a study in the book of Isaiah. You may have figured that out already. Um, uh, last week, Scott Culbreth preached from Isaiah 41, so naturally this morning I'll be preaching from Isaiah 38 to 39. Actually, I was scheduled to preach that on July 8th, but um, sabbatical travels prevented me from doing the level of study and prep that I needed, and you were gracious enough not to say, I thought you were going to preach that a long time ago. Uh, this is, oh, that's okay, uh, because today's message even though it's a little bit out of order, it's more topical than expository. And that in and of itself is out of the ordinary for me. Expository preaching, you don't have to be going through a book. Even if you're doing a topical message or if you're going through a particular text, you're just jumping into a text. As long as you're faithful to the text, that's the direction of expository preaching. But the but the form here is generally that we go through books of Scripture or through a big topic that is very related. They're all related with a lot of Scriptures tie-in together. Um, so today's going to be a little bit unusual. <clears throat> the title of the message is Dying Well in an Age Seeking 
immortality. Most of us don't like to think about death, at least not in our land, in our day. In every generation before ours, death was a familiar presence for most. I mean, infant and child mortality uh, were much higher than they are now. Many were treated medically at home, and when the medicine didn't work, people died at home in the presence of their families. Now we are extremely isolated from the end that every one of us will face, no matter how much we try to keep it at arm's length, no matter how little we try to think about it. Just I'm just going to put that out of my mind. No, 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 I don't want to think about it. In Isaiah 38 and 39, we're given the account of King Hezekiah's response to Isaiah when the prophet told Hezekiah to get his affairs in order because the Lord had determined that he was going to die. Those are not words that most of us would want to hear when Isaiah the prophet comes up and says, Get your house in order. You are going to die. Hezekiah wept bitterly and begged God to spare his life. The Lord in response granted Hezekiah 15 more years on earth. I don't know which would be more difficult, you know, going soon after the Lord told you you were going to say, okay, I'll give you another 15 years. I mean, you'd be counting off, you'd be right checking that calendar off all the way. <clears throat> How did Hezekiah use those years? Probably like most of us would use an extra 15. It was mixed, some good, some bad. Uh, if you've been following this study in Isaiah carefully, then you're familiar with names like Ahaz and Sennacherib and the title of the Rabshakeh. That's a great title, isn't it? The Rabshakeh. Neil, I listened to Neil's message and I heard him say it several times, I think. I thought, wow, Neil really knows how to say that. That's a great way to say it. Rabshakeh. Then it, it will interest you to know, if you've been following, that chronologically, the Lord delivering uh, Hezekiah... Uh, or get, granting Hezekiah an extra 15 years occurred before God delivered uh, the nation from the Assyrian Empire. So in other words, 36 and 37 talks about Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh coming to, to Jerusalem and saying, we're going to destroy you, and then God does this miraculous thing, and they go away. Then in verse 38 to 39, uh, you've got Hezekiah, he's got an extra 15 years, and you think if you're going in order, you think, okay, well, so he delivers Assyria, and after that he says, okay, Hezekiah, your time on earth is through. But actually, that happened before the Assyrian attack. Uh, why the change of order? Most likely because what we're told in 38 and 39 give us a foretaste of what's happening for the rest of the book. That Babylon, we're moving from a focus on Assyria to a focus on Babylon. But in the order of the way things happen, Hezekiah was given 15 years more before Assyria even attacked. So that'll make more sense as we go, I hope. <clears throat> we're going to begin this morning by reading Isaiah 38, verses 1 to 8. And then after prayer, I'm going to read... Isaiah 39, 1 through 8, with a little bit of comment, and that'll direct our thinking to the difficult, but important, and hopefully the helpful consideration uh, about the way that we should approach the end of our days on this earth. 
So would you please stand, as is our custom, for the reading of God's word, Isaiah 38, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. And Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. Let's pray. Our Father, we acknowledge that you are a God who has created us, you've created this universe, not just the earth, not just the world in our day, but you created this universe. You gave us life and you offer us eternal life through Christ. And you can do anything. But Lord, there is a way, a path that every one of us is called a walk. It is quite difficult. And fact is, we'd rather just not think about it. But Lord, as we think about it, may our hearts not be fearful, but encouraged that you walk with your children in the greatest of days and in the darkest of days. And that your presence will sustain us through anything. So encourage our hearts by your word this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. I think most of us would understand Hezekiah's response to the word that he was going to die. I mean, I would weep bitterly, I think, if I were told that I was going to die when, when my wife Linda received the news that she had two to three months to live, and it turned out to be 13. But when she received the news that she had a tumor, <laughs> this didn't take God by surprise. This, that's what she kept saying. I was more frantic in the early days than she was, and she was never frantic in that entire time. I would have probably been a good bit more frantic than she was. Look, maybe we would weep more bitterly over the news that someone who is very close to us likely is going to die, then we would weep for ourselves. But the news that, <clears throat> that we or someone we love is going to die is often both shocking 
and devastating, especially with how little we are acquainted with death. In, in lands and in cultures where uh, they don't have all the advantages of medicine and hygiene that we have and where death comes much more readily to people than it does here, um, people are, tend to be much more fatalistic. They just accept it. This is a part the way it is. But in our land, it's tough. It's tough. We don't expect that to happen. And so... Um, <clears throat> It's difficult when we find out that someone is sick, that sick. I imagine at some point many of you have thought that you or someone you love was going to die. After the shock and the numbness wore off, did you find that your brush with mortality, especially when it turns out it wasn't the case, did your brush with mortality clarify your thinking? Or did you just say, oh, glad that's over, and you just go right back to the way that you had always lived before. Let's see how Hezekiah responded. Uh, Isaiah 39.1 at, at that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Look, Merodach had heard about this great sign that God had done. Word got out. Second uh, Chronicles, Second Kings both talk about uh, these events, and, and word got out that God had made the sundial go back, and so he came wanting to hear about it. Uh, this verse, by the way, is one of those indicators that this happened before Assyria came uh, in 36 and 37. Uh, Merodach Baladan's rule in Babylon preceded Assyria's attack. He was already off the scene when Assyria attacked Jerusalem. Uh, just a quick look back at our map to look at the political uh, structures and the geographical boundaries of the day. Assyria was the big world player in uh, the region, that region of the world. You see Babylon over there, Babylonia over there. <clears throat> uh, it, it was a, a relatively small territory, but they had lots of uh, plans to expand themselves. By the time we get to the end of Isaiah, the first part of Isaiah in 38 and 39. Syria, Assyria has already taken over. Syria, Israel, Tyre, Philistia. Some, I, 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 I don't know exactly which of those nations were still standing. Assyria was attacking Jerusalem from the south. Uh, they had already taken over much of Judah and they were attacking Jerusalem from the south. Babylonia had an appetite to be the new Assyria. And they were constantly attacking Assyria, being attacked by Assyria, and they were looking for alliances. All of these nations were making alliances with one another. And the Babylonians came over to Judah and said, hey, why don't we make an alliance and attack Assyria or protect ourselves against Assyria? So... Um, even though God repeatedly encouraged the kings of Judah to trust him rather than alliances made with the surrounding nations, even the good kings were constantly looking for ways to protect Judah against Assyria. So um, when the Babylonians came to see Hezekiah, he gladly received them because he also thought an alliance against Assyria would be a good thing. Not only for Babylonia, of course, but for Judah. Verse 2. And Hezekiah 
welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure, treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, Did you take the cookie that was in the cookie jar? Essentially, is what he said. <laughs> and Isaiah told the truth. Look, I, I, years ago, a lot of you have heard this story, but a lot of you have not. I heard about uh, these little twins, Mark and Mary. And um, Mary was very bright. Mark was maybe not quite as bright. But Mary looked out for Mark and she, she sometimes even took the blame for him. So one day the mom came home and she had a, made a chocolate pie and there was one piece of pie missing. Just one. And she went to Mark who had chocolate pie all over his face. And she said, Mark... Did you eat that piece of pie? And he thought for a minute. He said, have you checked with Mary yet? <laughs> so, look, Hezekiah didn't even try that. He just, he knew that Isaiah knew everything from God about him. And so, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, they have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Hezekiah's thinking, look, if I show them we're worthy of, uh, uh, of being an ally, then they will think that that's the case. Verse 5, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. In other words, you want Babylon? I'll give you Babylon. Be careful what you ask for. Careful what you want. Verse 7. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, Oh, what have I done? No, he didn't say that. He said, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. So even though Hezekiah tried to project this spiritual persona, Oh, the word of the Lord is good. The Holy Spirit busted him. And it's written down for us to see all these years later that Isaiah thought in his, in his heart. Okay, my sons will, and grandsons will be taken captive. They'll be humiliated, mutilated. But there'll be peace in my day, so I'm good with that. Now, what do you think about that? That's pretty disgusting, isn't it? What horrible, horrible spirit and thought. So how would you like for every one of your private thoughts to be made public? There's probably something somewhere along the way that would be just as despicable to everybody else. We all have the same disease. It's why we all die. We're all sinners. 
We're all in need of a savior. God extended grace to Hezekiah, not because he was worthy, but because he loved him. The same reason he's extended grace to you, those of you who have repented of your sins and you're you have put your faith and your trust and your hope for heaven in Christ's sacrifice in your behalf. According to 2 Chronicles 32, Hezekiah humbled himself in repentance when God made him sick because of his pride. This was earlier. But now, later, um, actually, this, that, uh, yeah, that was, that was during this time. I'm sorry. When the Babylonians came to make an alliance, 2 Chronicles 32 tells us that God left. No, it's, the sickness was earlier. Babylonians come. And, and 2 Chronicles 32 tells us that God left Hezekiah to himself to see what was in his heart. And Hezekiah did not do so well. Look, it is the reason we cannot leave ourselves. We cannot be left to ourselves. We have to be in the word day in and day out, close to the Lord. Sunday is not enough. Sunday at home group is not enough. Every day in the word, growing, hearing from God. Being changed by the word, cleansed and changed by the word of God. <clears throat> Hezekiah didn't do so well <clears throat> when God left him to himself. When you're faced with a crisis, particularly a health crisis, how do you respond? Does your crisis of health become a crisis of faith? Not long from now, we're going to come to the Lord's table where we will think about Jesus' death and how that means life for us. For the remainder of the sermon time, we're going to think about dying well in an age seeking immortality. Five thoughts, beginning with this first one. Death is an enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, death is an enemy. No wonder people want, who do not know Jesus want to extend their lives for as long as possible. Look, while it may seem obvious to you that all die, there are a whole lot of people working strenuously and, and tirelessly to enable humans to live forever. As ludicrous as that sounds, there are lots of men and women working hard to help humans achieve immortality. I should say, to be honest, to help incredibly wealthy human beings to achieve immortality, even if it means that we'll, we'll be connected to machines. But it's not just unbelievers who want to avoid death. So do believers. We were not created to die. I mean, maybe if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, we would all be living in Eden, to this day, we would all be living in a perfect creation. But Adam and Eve did rebel against God. And as God had warned them, death became a reality. It's a reality for all who are of Adam's race. That is, all humans. As Anne Lamott said, and I think I may have said the very last time I was here, a hundred years from now, all new people. Even though death is inevitable, and even though Jesus defeated death through his own death on the cross, it is an enemy. 
So do not be surprised if even some believers follow Dylan Thomas' charge. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. It is not only acceptable for us to pray fervently and to pursue treatment for serious illness. It is often part of God's design to draw us to himself. He makes us sick to, to turn our focus to Him. When the end of life is inevitable, though, we must pray for grace to die well. One of the ways that He helps us to do so, as our second point suggests, is to remind us that Jesus has conquered death and removed its sting. It's like death is a bee and it's coming in and it's, it sets up on our flesh and, the, and, and just before it's about to hit us, the sting is removed. We dread the sting, but the sting is removed. Look, a full grasp of understanding. I've gotten into trouble with certain... <laughs> Pastor saying this before, but it's it's pretty clear that that in the Old Testament, uh, people did not have a fully developed understanding of the afterlife. Um, Hezekiah is thanking the Lord profusely, uh, wax poetic after God said, "Okay, you'll live for another fifteen years," and he says, "Oh, thank you. I am able to praise you in the land of the living. Nothing happens good in Sheol and the grave." David sounded very much the same. You get these little glimpses of, uh, of an understanding of eternity, but a lot of times I think Old Testament saints said things that they didn't uh, uh, understand, like Job, in the end, I will stand up. I know my Redeemer lives, and I will be with Him in the end. Uh, they didn't fully understand it, but now, in this day in which Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and the New Testament has been written, we have a far better understanding of what eternal life is like, even though there's a whole lot we don't know about heaven. What do you want to know about heaven? We can tell a little bit from Scripture, but there's a lot we don't know. We're invited to speculate to some level, but remember, it is just there's a difference between speculation and what Scripture says about it. The New Testament believer can look death in the face and say with Paul, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, by the way, is a quote Quotation of Hosea 13, 14. So even though a doctrine of life at, after death could not be fully understood apart from Jesus, the promises of God were in place from before the, before the foundations of the world were even laid. 1 Corinthians 15 shows the depth of the level of God's love for his people in spite of our sin and rebellion. Look, maybe... You have hit a rough patch in your, in your walk with the Lord. Or life has just beaten you down. Or someone that you love very dearly has been taken from you. Or you're waiting for a medical report and you don't know how it's going to go. 
If you are a follower of Christ, you can know that the victory has already been won. Even over the last enemy that will be eliminated, death. He's not going to be eliminated entirely until the very end. But even now, the victory has been won over death. You know this, but it's a good reminder for all of us because we all struggle when we come to this point. And if life makes no sense to you whatsoever, may I encourage you to just follow the pattern of Anselm of Canterbury's life, his thinking and his life when he said this from the 11th century. I do not seek to understand in order to believe, but I believe in order to understand. For I believe this, unless I believe, I will not understand. By the way, this is a word of great comfort for us when life makes no sense. It is also a great word when you're witnessing to someone who says, look, if it could just make sense in my mind, I would believe it. Just say, it's never going to make sense until you believe. And I can promise you, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it will make sense. And there'll still be a lot you don't understand. But when you don't understand, trust. Trust Him. Believe. Believe this, brothers and sisters. When you take your last breath, you will pass from death to life, not the other way around. Third, an awareness of life after death or... Life after the second coming of Christ should provoke us to holiness. It is never a bad thing to be faced with your mortality. When you contemplate the distinct possibility that you or someone you love may die sooner rather than later, it should have an, a, a profound impact on the way that you live and so order your days. It should order your days differently. It should, but it will not necessarily be the case. It's as we have seen with Hezekiah. Look, I've had some of those those scares, and, and look, I got to tell you, I, when people would say they understood that I had gone through this with Linda, I would always say yes. But you know what? It was her, not me. I would have given anything if the Lord had let me take her place. I would have given anything. I would have chosen that without blinking. It wasn't his will. And I walked with her through really difficult days. It still wasn't me. I still have that to come at the end of my life. And when I have brushes with my own mortality, it really impacts me for a while. But then, like Hezekiah, I just tend to go right on back, which is why we cannot be left to ourselves. We have to be in the Word and with our brothers and sisters in Christ encouraging and admonishing us all the time. The passages of Scripture that I've listed with this point remind us that we will give an account for how we live this life. I know that Jesus has paid for our sins and, and that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus and thus he is pleased. I, I realize that. But there is a good bit in the New Testament that indicates the seriousness of our meeting with the Lord 
when we stand before him based on how we have lived our lives. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says to the Corinthians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, whether good or useless. You could possibly, uh, as a possible interpretation of that. Uh, Allison and I, uh, last two weeks ago, it was either on Saturday, I think it was Saturday, we were in Corinth, in ancient Corinth. And several of you have been there on Holy Land tours. And there was the Bema seat of Christ where Paul stood in the book of Acts. I believe it was Acts 17 or 18, somewhere along in there. He stood and was judged. And, and, the, and the ruler said, nope, not guilty. This is not a, a matter of civil law or, or not a matter of, uh, of the laws of the land. This is a religious matter, so I find him not guilty. But all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And it's a serious thing. 1 John 3 challenges us to live holy lives in light of Jesus' second coming and in light of the grace that will transform us completely into his likeness. It's never a bad thing to face your mortality and to think about these things. Fourth, <clears throat> how we suffer and die is a testimony to the reality of God. Philippians 1, 27 to 30. Francis Collins is a noted physician slash geneticist who headed the Genome Project in the 1990s. Collins was a brilliant student who followed his brilliant parents into atheism while earning degrees at the University of Virginia and Yale University. In his book titled The Language of God, uh, Collins tells his readers that when he entered med school at the University of North Carolina over in Chapel Hill, and he was confronted with numbers of very simple people who had been given uh, the diagnosis, you have a terminal illness and prognosis is you've got a few months to live. When time after time he saw their faith helping them to accept what God had decreed to be so about their lives, he was deeply moved and converted to Christianity. Uh, look, I'm certain some of you would take issue with some of Collins' beliefs, but his story of faith shows the power of those who die well, sharing the gospel with their lives as well as with their words. Philippians 1, 27 to 30 speaks about suffering persecution for one's faith. But the same principle applies as we approach the end of life. Look at this text. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. <clears throat> for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict <coughs> that you 
saw I had, and now here I still have. In the early years, um, persecution caused Christianity to grow enormously. That is not always the case. Um, Eastern Europe, you go to the places where communism tried to snuff out uh, Christianity. You go to the uh, Czech Republic, go to other places like that, and you'll see they did a pretty effective job. Now, it doesn't mean the gospel will stay down, but sometimes it goes and stays down. Other times, like Mao Zedong in um, China with the Great Cultural Revolution, tried to wipe out all religion, and he succeeded in wiping out a great deal of religion, except for a handful of Christians. And then when the restrictions were loosened a little bit, this deeply spiritual people, hungry spiritually, began to turn to the gospel in droves. We don't know how God is going to work in the ways that he does, but we know this. When we suffer well, when we die well, it makes a difference. As people observe that. It's a testimony for the Lord. And when we don't ever think about it, when we don't prepare for it, what happens? We panic and so, Lord, prepare us. Last of all, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Philippians 1.21 <clears throat> Paul was under house arrest when he wrote Philippians. Um, he thought out loud to his friends as he was writing. It's one of the really cool things. You don't think about this in Scripture, but Philippians 1 is almost like Paul thinking out loud, saying, look, I might be condemned to death. Probably I'm going to live so that I can continue my ministry, particularly with you. <clears throat> and that would be a good thing. Probably I'll be found not guilty, and so I won't be executed. Um, but honestly, if I had to give you my preference, I would rather go to be with Jesus. Wow. Not many of us get to that place unless we have suffered greatly. And that, by the way, is one of the blessings. Even in our sin and the ultimate consequence of our sin being that we die, God is gracious and merciful. The older we get, the more he prepares us. And just like Kathleen McKinney, we heard so many times that she said towards the end, well, I just want to, you know, I want to go to be with the Lord and be with Albert. And the Lord was preparing her heart, even though it came as a shock to all of us that one so young went to be with the Lord. But it's far different, you know, when we're younger. But God in his sovereignty and in his mercy prepares us. To go to be with him. Paul had suffered much, of course. But he had a lot of life to live if he was found not guilty. Which he apparently was. This was Paul's first imprisonment. It was house, arrest. Every three or four hours they changed out guards. And so these were the royal guards. It was the imperial guard. The, um, and a number of them were converted to Christ being chained to Paul. Think about it. He was in chains and yet he had a captive audience as he was, you know, sharing the gospel with these guards. And many of them trusted Christ. Uh, it wasn't Paul's last stop. I, back in the early 80s on a Holy Land trip, I had been to the Mamertine prison. I was talking with Jim Aycock about it the other day. 
uh, Lee and Stacy and Allison and I went. This prison cell, if you call it that, dated to 600 years at least before Christ. It was a hole cut in a stone floor that dropped about 12 feet maybe. And we, you, you can walk down the steps. Now, if you ever go to Rome, you have to see the Mamertine prison. Paul was either here or possibly um, something very much like this. It may not have been that. But you go down. I think Ben and I were talking. Have you been there, Ben? Yes, Ben's been there. It's, it's deeply moving. There would be 10, 20, as many as 30 prisoners in this very small space. They were dropped through the hole or let down through the hole. There were no facilities. Water would rise, come through there sometimes when there was flooding in the city. Uh, some would drown. Paul would have had to write his letter, 2 Timothy, from... <clears throat> By talking up to Luke, who most likely took the dictation in 2 Timothy, in these awful, awful, awful conditions. But this is not where Paul was at the time. When he got there, he said, and it's one of the texts that I listed earlier. He said, I fought a good fight. I finished the faith, finished the course. I finished the race. And now I'm ready for the reward that the Lord has for me and for all who love his appearing. Paul knew the Lord so well and his faith was so strong that he longed to be with Jesus. Not just in that second imprisonment, but in the first imprisonment when it was house arrest and people were coming to Christ all over the place. It, it seems that the Lord puts a will to live in all of us and we almost always choose life when we have the chance, even if it means brutal medical treatments. That's what Linda chose. That's what Allison and several of you chose when you were diagnosed with breast cancer. And it is more than appropriate to take whatever measures that we can to extend our lives. All healing is from God, whether supernatural or through the natural processes such as medicine that God established in the first week of creation. When he said, when he said, let the, let the earth sprout, let the plant sprout. He created all of this vegetation. Then he says, okay, now let the process go. Fiat, let there be and there was. Process, let the earth sprout. Seek help when you are sick. When your hope is in Christ, though, you do not have to live in a state of panic or despair, even though you may that may understandably be your first response to a serious illness or accident and never, ever, ever, ever judge someone who is responding with deep emotion when they or someone they love is going through a really difficult time. Never do that. That is a dangerous thing. God may very quickly show you what it's like to be in that place. Always extend mercy to other people. If our hope is in Jesus, and if we, and, and we have staked our lives on it, 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 not only our lives, but our eternal future, if our hope is in Jesus, then the instant we are in the Lord's presence, we will wonder why we clung so tightly to this world. Allison said something about, were you thinking, yesterday she said, you thinking about Linda? I said, Linda's a lot better off than I am, I can tell you that. 
She's a lot better off than any of us in this room are. I don't care what kind of report you've been given, what kind of life, what kind of raise you've been given, inheritance. Doesn't matter. When we stand before Jesus, you're going to think, wow, I was hanging on for that. I asked for an extra 15 years, but for this, to miss this, we're natured to do so, though. But the closer we draw to Jesus, the greater our desire will be to live in his presence. We trust the Lord to take us when he is determined to do so. By the way, someone asked me one time, do you believe God, you will only die when it's your time? I said, yes, I believe that. Our days are numbered. Psalm 139 says that all of our days are written in his book. And... This person said, so if I step in front of a bus and it's not my time, I won't die? I said, if you step in front of a bus, it's your time. <laughs> I, that's, that's just the way it, it works. But when it is our time, we must, whether or not we know it, look, life is fragile. It's always been fragile. It's just that we're more aware of it sometimes than others. We must always live with the expectation that we will see Jesus sooner rather than later. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And Lord, cause our hearts to affirm for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. Let's pray. Well, Father, we acknowledge that as a people, we love life. There are times when we don't, but for the most part, we do. And you have provided the most incredible life for us imaginable, but in order to receive it in order to live it and appreciate it, we must live daily in the shadow of the cross. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Lord, uh, as we approach your table this morning, where we have been invited to eat together and remember the death of Christ, the body that was given for us and the blood that was spilled so that we might have eternal life. Encourage, challenge our hearts, Lord, make us more like Jesus, whom we now consider deeply, carefully. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the elders and the deacons and uh, the worship team to come forward. Uh, in just a moment, we're going to partake and uh, we will come forward this morning to partake of the, <clears throat> of the elements of the Lord's Supper. Um, you will come down the inner aisles, go to the uh, station that is in front of your section. There will be four sections, so or 
four stations. So go to the station that is in front of your section. The elders and the deacons and the worship team will be served <clears throat> first. And then we will alert you when to come uh, forward. We will have someone in the back. If you are unable to come forward, then just raise your hand. and uh, Ricky Lee will serve you <clears throat> at your seat. We invite all those who know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior to join us at this table today. Is it, um, have you ever thought about the fact that when we're called together at this table, excuse me, we're called together at this table, we don't remember the Lord's incarnation as spectacular as the fact that God became man and became one of us. We don't remember Jesus' resurrection. We really, we look forward to the second coming, but that's not our focus. What is our focus? Our focus is on Jesus' death. And it's because of his death that death in our lives will be defeated, that the sting of death is removed. For those who trust Jesus, we will live forever eternally all will live forever eternally but only those who have repented of their sins and trusted Jesus his death on the cross is our sacrifices payment for our sins will live in eternity forever and I think about this and say it a lot but no matter how disappointed you are with your body um there will only be one imperfect body in heaven. That will be the Lord's. We'll see the scars. And, and when Jesus is presented in Revelation chapter 5, he is as, as a lamb slain, a lamb that has been slain. All through eternity, we'll remember Jesus' death so that we might live. So this morning as we come... <clears throat> To the Lord's table, I will read from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also... He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to this table to establish yet again, not for the first time or having to all over again, but as we confess with our hearts and minds, we belong to Jesus and he belongs to us. But we don't do this as individuals, even though indeed it is an individual decision that we make, we do it as a body. You have given us a, communi a community of faith, and we commune together as we remember 
the body that was given for us and the blood that was spilled. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you that the that, that the last and the, and, and the greatest enemy, the one that we all hate more than anything, death, has been destroyed, ironically, by death. Thank you, Jesus, for living a perfect life in the face of, of temptation that none of us has ever known. Thank you for willingly dying on our behalf. Thank you, Father, for your incredible plan and spirit for making all of this make sense to us and giving us guidance even as we come to this table. We do so with contrite hearts. Lord, we confess our sin to you. And we ask for your strength and your power to live more and more like Jesus as we are being conformed to his image. And we give thanks for the great sacrifice that gives us life. And all of these things we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.